So, um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, I told you last week that uh, the message was going to be one message in two parts or two weeks. So, uh, if you didn't hear last week's, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, because really in a lot of ways it's foundational to this week, but uh, hopefully uh, we, we can review and kind of catch you up and you can jump in and uh, I think you'll be fine. So, I'm just kind of going to jump into uh, some review. So let's read Ephesians 4.1. Paul writes, I therefore, and remember therefore is key here because it connects what he's about to say to what he's already said. From the doctrinal uh, to the practical, he's saying that what uh, I'm telling you to do under the leading of the Holy Spirit now is based on what Christ has already done for you. You know, he talks about the calling of which you were called. The Father has chosen us. The Son has redeemed us. The Spirit has secured us. We have the presence of God in us. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, because of that, this is how you're to live. That, that's the connection. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, he's pleading with them, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so uh, walk, we talked about last week, represents lifestyle, our, our daily conduct. You know, Because walking is an ongoing action. I'm walking at this moment. Now I'm not walking. You're either walking or not. And so we're called to walk, to daily progress, to ongoing uh, walk with Jesus. He says to walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. And we talked about worthy last week basically means to live a life where we're uh, seeking for our actual practice to match up to our position in Christ. Uh, let me illustrate it for you this way. We're going to show you a series of uh, three images of seesaws. Okay, so, you know, our position in Christ is way up here, right? He's done all these things for us. Just in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians, uh, I've listed for you about two dozen things that we have or we are uh, in Christ. All these things that, that he has done for us. Now, it's a problem if our position is up here and our practice as professing Christians is way down here. Our life is completely out of balance at, at that point. I mean, if it's this extreme, we're kind of a hypocrite, in, in all honesty. Now, the goal, what we're striving for, level. Our practice to match up to our position. But, you can relax for a second, that's not going to happen until you get to heaven. That's actually glorification. I mean, we're not going to be 100% you know, living this out, but... It should be a whole lot better than the first slide, okay? It should be maybe a little bit more like this. We're getting there. The idea of progressive sanctification, ongoing spiritual growth. We're, we're making progress in Christ's likeness. Now, how do we do that? Well, remember the main idea. We live out what Jesus expects from us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. We live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. And so last week we focused on the second half of, of that statement. Today we're going to focus on the first half of it. And, and, I, and I try to expand on that, that you know, the, the power for living the Christian life is Christ living in us and through us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No, we, we can't live the Christian life on our own, in our own strength. We talked about last week, that's legalism. And so, just kind of the four statements I made to try to explain the second half of the main idea. Uh, let's just review those, and then we'll get into today's material one. If, if we're going to live out of what Christ has done for us, we have to see the gospel as the means of both our uh, salvation and our spiritual growth. Everything's about Jesus. Everything's about the gospel. Remember the J.D. Greer analogy I used last week? The gospel is not just the diving board. It's the pool. It's, it's everything in the Christian life. Second, if we're going to grow uh, by living out of what Christ has done for us. It means it's not, we're tr- not just trying to do things externally. It means we're living a new life out of a new heart. It's, it starts with his work in us. Three, we have to realize that the Christian life is not behavior modification, but it's life transformation through the power of God. That, that God's not interested in, in just working on the edges, but he's interested in getting to our very hearts and completely changing us, even down to our motives and attitudes from the inside out, where we grow to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And then, if we're going to live out of what Christ has done for us, we have to keep our focus on Jesus and what he has done for us. So, we live out of what Jesus has done for us, but he expects us to live it out. And so, when when he says to walk worthy, that's a command, and it's an action on our part. Do you see that? He's not walking for us. He empowers us to walk. He's with us. He's living through us. But we are still taking the steps. And I want to give us a couple of analogies to to help us understand, hopefully, how this fits together. So, Winston Churchill, probably one of the greatest leaders who ever lived. What he uh, did in World War II is, is the Prime Minister of England. And, of course, early in World War II... England, and with it, all of Europe was hanging on by a thread under the onslaught of Adolf Hitler. And, uh, you know, England was being bombed. They could have very easily surrendered. But, uh, I mean, their people had resolved that a lot of it came from Winston Churchill's steely resolve that, you know, we're not giving in, you know, the famous uh, speech uh, that, that he made about, you know, we're going to fight you on the beaches and in the streets and, uh, and, and all these kind of things. Well, In his memoir, Winston Churchill uh, shares that after he heard about Pearl Harbor being bombed in December of 1941, that he called President Roosevelt. And he said this to him. He said, well, we're all in the same boat now. And then in reflecting back on that, he, he, he said this. He said, no American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the U.S. was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply proper application of overwhelming force. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Now let me read one of these sentences again. The rest of the war was simply proper application of overwhelming force. Well, 
How does that relate to our spiritual lives? I want you to think about it like this. The Bible teaches us that as Christians, we are in a spiritual war. That the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. We are in, in a war with our own flesh, our own sinful nature, the world that stands in opposition to God around us, and Satan. It's a war. But in, in, in fighting that war, and, and remember, when, when the United States uh, you know, declared war, when we entered in, nothing changed in England's circumstance at that moment outwardly. But he still made this statement like he saw that the war was already won. And so in Christ, the war is already won. You see, the overwhelming force for fighting this spiritual war is what we talked about last week. It's the gospel. It's Christ in us. It's the fact that we can live out of what Jesus has done for us. But to experience that, it takes the proper application of that overwhelming force. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what the first half of the main idea relates to. Okay? So what, what does that look like? Well, we need to understand what Philippians 2.12 and 13 tell us. The end of verse 12 says, Work out, notice it doesn't say work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he says we're to work out our salvation because God is working in us. And I think that fits the main idea. This, these parallel ideas that end up running together that we're to work it out. We're to walk it out. We're to live in a way that Jesus expects us. Why? Because of what he's already done for us. Because he's working in us. Uh, here's a, another analogy for us to think about, okay? Think about a train, all right? So a, a train obviously runs on tracks. And those tracks keep it from, you know, wrecking, keep it from going off course, keep it running in the right direction. So in this analogy, think of the, the train tracks as like the law, God's law that, that guides and directs us. Now, there's people on the train working, right? There's like an engineer that's driving the thing, I guess, if that's the right terminology. There's a brakeman that's stopping the thing. I don't know all the jobs on a train. I mean, I think about movies and somebody's, you know, tossing coal into it, but I imagine that's not how it works anymore. But, you know, there, there's different people that are on the train, and they're working, and they're important to the functioning of the train. But let me ask you a question. Are they actually making the train run? Is that's what... Is their work propelling the train forward? Would it happen without what they're doing? Probably not, but they're not like out there pushing the train, and that's how it's headed down the tracks, right? What's actually propelling the train forward? The engine. The engine. And so the engine is the gospel, it's what we talked about last week. It's Jesus. He's the one that propels us forward. He's the one that gives us the power to walk. The law is what keeps us on the tracks. Now, we're on the train. There's some things we need to be doing to actually you know, work with what the engine is doing. But it's Christ living through us. But there's some things we need to do too. So, what, what, what are those things? I mean, you know, what are some truths that we need to understand and apply if we're going to live out 
what Jesus expects of us because he's living in us. And so, kind of like I did last week, I want to give you some statements to kind of amplify and hopefully help us to understand and apply the first part of the main idea here. And, and, I, and I, want to, I want to give you five, and kind of like last week, we'll spend more time on the first one than we do uh, the others. But the, the first two are, are more about kind of foundation and understanding. The last three are more about practical steps to take, okay? So understand, if we're going to walk with Christ and live a life that honors Him, it just doesn't automatically happen even though he's done all these things for us. That's the point we're making today. So I think the first thing we have to, um, to clarify is we have to understand what God's expectation is for what the Christian life should look like. And I'm just going to give you a very simple statement. Like I said, I'm giving you five statements. Maybe I could have tried to boil it all down to one, but I could have given you a hundred also. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into living the Christian life. Here's some key things. So what does God expect of us? God expects us to walk in obedience as followers of Jesus. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If we say we're following Jesus, did Jesus live an obedient life or a disobedient life? He lived an obedient life, right? So how can we say that we're really following Jesus if we're just continually living a disobedient life? Now, beyond logic, I mean, just look at what Scripture says. Here's just a few representative verses. Jesus himself said, Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So in other words, how do we say Jesus is Lord and then do the opposite of what he says? James 1.22 says, don't just be, uh, here's the word, be doers. Also, put it into practice. Uh, James 2.17, faith without works is dead. Um, 1 John 2.3 uh, through 6, I mean, this really spells it out. It says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And really, 1 John, a lot of what it's about is about the security of our salvation. A lot of times we ask, how do I know if I'm saved? But one of the ways you know is your life generally obedient to Christ. Because if it's generally disobedient, there's a really good chance that you're not even saved. But he goes on to say, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. I didn't write it. I mean, that's pretty strong language, but that's what God says, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Uh, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, here's that word again, just as he, Jesus, walked. So what's the goal for our lives as Christians? To walk just like Jesus walked, to live like Jesus lived. And Jesus lived in submission to the Father, doing his will, obeying him. Right? I mean, that, that's what we're called to do. I mean, that's, uh, that, that's the standard, to, to walk like Jesus. Now, I thought about getting my dad to uh, help me to do a demonstration of this, but I, I decided that it would just be too freaky for you to handle. It would just be, you just, uh, you, you might not come back because it'd just be so weird to you. But if you're around my dad and I at the same time, just watch us. We walk exactly alike. I, I walk exactly like my dad does. 
It's just, it's weird. I'm, I'm telling you, it's just strange looking. And, and I mean, but I think, and what if I walk that much like my heavenly father? What if I walk that much like Jesus? That, that's what he's talking about. You know, the Bible tells us to be imitators of God. As Christians, we're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by the obedience of Christ. We're saved by his finished work, but we're called to live a life of obedience. Now, I, I could just move on from here, but I'm going to stop here uh, briefly because I need to play whack-a-mole for a second. We need to whack a pinata around for a minute because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this in the church in the United States. Last week, we talked about legalism. And, and legalism is you know, when we add to the, the Bible, when we add to the gospel, when you know, we're being religious, you know, man-made rules, when we're depending on ourselves for our salvation or our spiritual growth, trying to do it our, our, ourselves. Or, you know, there's, uh, a lot of times legalists will come up with this stuff that people have to follow that's not actually in the Bible. But there's another perversion of the gospel, and the book of Galatians talks about both uh, of these. But it could be called license, or if you want a big two-bit uh, theological word, it's called antinomianism. And antinomianism literally means against the law. And it's the idea, basically, that the law has no place in the life of a Christian. Now, we would say certainly we're not obligated to follow the, the civil laws of Israel that are given in the Old Testament. We certainly don't follow the uh, sacrificial ceremonial laws anymore because all that was fulfilled by Christ on the, the cross. But, but we're, what we're talking about is are, are Christians supposed to obey the moral law of God? Now, it's kind of interesting to me that a lot of people in, in different forms would kind of say we're not because, you know, there's actually over a thousand commands in the New Testament. Um, so it, it seems to be a, a big part of living the Christian life. But, uh, you know, people, and it goes back to what, uh, you know, Paul was experiencing this in, in his day. Galatians 5.13 tells us to not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That's what we're talking about. And so it, it, it's really, it, it's, it's kind of the, the idea that some people would say, here's some different maybe characteristics of it. You ever heard somebody say, well, I'm saved. I'm covered by God's grace, so I can do whatever I want to do. I'm going to heaven, so I'm fine. You, you heard that before? That's antinomianism. That, that, that's this kind of thinking. Uh, you, ever, you ever heard somebody uh, teach that you know, God doesn't see sin in the believer anymore? That's antinomianism. I'm not saying we're not forgiven, but God still knows when you and I sin. And the Bible says God disciplines those that he loves. He doesn't condemn us anymore, but he still sees sin in our lives. Uh, people say you know, the law is no longer binding for Christians. That's antinomianism. People say, well, you know, we're just the gospel. We, we, we're under grace. Do you understand? There is no gospel apart from the law. If we don't know the bad news of our condemnation, we can never know the good news of our salvation. Um, so, you know, sometimes people say the law and the gospel are just composed or are opposed to one another. Some people say, well, if you're trying to be holy, that's just legalism. That's antinomianism. People say that you don't need to try to grow spiritually. 
That's antinomianism. That, that's what we're talking about here. And, and, and really what it does, basically, practically, is it gives people an excuse or a license to disobey. It, 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 it perverts grace and says grace is the freedom to sin instead of the freedom from sin. You know, grace does not free us from obedience. Grace empowers us to obey. I mean, we read that in Romans chapter 6 during, during the worship time. So, just to review for a minute, and, and you know, we, I showed you this uh, earlier in, in the book of Ephesians. The Reformers talked about three uses of the law. First of all, the law is like a mirror that reveals God, it reveals who we are, and it shows our sinful condition, and it shows that we can't save our, ourselves. So, if you, just, you know, if you look at this picture of a mirror, and everybody knows what a mirror is, and I've used this analogy a lot, uh, it's, it's like if you're dirty and you're outside working and you walk in the house and you look in the mirror, it shows you you're dirty, shows you you need to get clean, but it doesn't clean you. You actually have to get in the shower to do that. And so the mirror is the law. Jesus is like the shower who actually cleans us, but we have to know that we're sinful and in need of a Savior uh, before we come to him. But here's even a better analogy for this. It comes from J.D. Greer. Uh, go back to the mirror for a second, please. If, if you think of a mirror, like if you look in a mirror, it shows you. But could you imagine if there was a mirror that when you looked in it, it not only showed you, you know, an image of yourself, but there was also an outline of what you would look like, what you should look like if you were in perfect shape. Like, if you had 4% body fat, this is you. So every time you look in the mirror, you see that image of what you could be if you never ate and worked out for 12 hours a day. And you also see this image of what you really are. That's the law. It shows us who we ought to be. And it shows us how far we fall short of that to show us that we could never save ourselves and we have to have Jesus. So that's one use of the law. Second use of the law is the law is like a guardrail. It's, it's given to society to protect from uh, evil, to restrain evil. I mean, could you imagine the anarchy if we had no laws and no consequences for breaking those laws? And of course, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, any just law actually ultimately comes from God. Now, nobody's going to probably dispute the first two. The third one is where the debate comes in. So the third use of the law, according to the, uh, the, the reformers, is it's kind of like a, a, a GPS, or it's even kind of like that train track we talked about, to guide believers in living a holy life. And so, you know, it, it's the idea that the gospel is the engine of the train that empowers me to live it, but the, 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 the law is like the GPS that's guiding me, or it's like those train tracks. It's showing me what that life looks like, and it's keeping me on track. And so in that sense, the law still has a place in our lives as Christians, and obedience to the law, at least, or let's just say obedience to the commands uh, of the New Testament, if that makes it easier for us to grasp, then is a part of our lives in that sense. So Phil Johnson puts it this way. He says, in other words, this third use of the law that I just talked about 
makes the law's moral standards the, the, the rule by which the faithful must order their conduct. In this sense, the moral strictures of the law remain binding on Christians, even though we are not under the law in the Pauline sense, which means we're not dependent on our own obedience for any part of our justification. Do you understand the difference? If, we're, if you're trying to be a Christian or become a Christian by obeying the law, you're actually lost. You're not a Christian. Remember the Tim Keller chart last week? We're not accepted because we obey. We obey because we're accepted. That's the difference that that this is talking about. And so Jim Wilkin uh, says it this way. She says, obedience is only moralism if we believe it curries favor with God. The believer knows that it is impossible to curry favor with God because God needs nothing from us. The favor we have from God doesn't, isn't something that we've gained. That's grace. It was something that was given. He accepted us freely by his grace. He says, she says he cannot be put in our debt. Knowing this frees us to obey, here's the difference, out of joyful gratitude rather than servile grasping. In other words, we obey not to get something from God, not to enter into a relationship with God, not to be able to make a deal with God, but we obey because we're accepted in Christ, we're forgiven, we belong to Him, and now we love Him because He first loved us, we love Him, and so we want to please Him, we want to honor Him, we're thankful, we're grateful, so we're giving our lives back to Him in response to what He's already done for us, and that's how we live the Christian life, in obedience, out of gratitude, seeking to grow more and more, to walk more and more like Jesus walked. Does that make sense? So you can, okay, Preston got it, anybody else get it? You know what I'm saying? So this is the goal of the Christian life, but I think that leads to a question, or for me at least, a couple of questions. Hopefully it raises some questions for you. I don't know. because, but, but here's two questions it raises for me. Number one, if all this is true, if this is the goal and Jesus has done all this for me, why is it so hard to live out? And maybe even a better question is, why am I so bad at living it out a lot of the time? I mean, you know, why is it if all this is true? I've been a Christian for almost 40 years. You know, why am I still prideful? Why do I struggle with being selfish? You know, why am I spiritually lazy sometimes? You know, why do I want my own way uh, with God? Why is my heart, you know, sometimes really close to the Lord, really love Him, and other times it's just kind of cold and indifferent, and, you know, I could go on with all kinds of examples, but, you know, why is my Christian life not just up and to the right? Why is it a roller coaster a lot of the time? Can anybody relate to those questions? All right, everybody else, I guess, just got it together, so you, you can take a nap for a few minutes. But, uh, so, so I want to give you a biblical answer to this, and, and I, I think this is so practically important. Because if you don't get this, the Christian life will make no sense to you. It'll drive you crazy. You might want to give up on it. Uh, you may just be like, you know, I'm done. I can't do this. This is too hard. And, uh, you know, I kind of referred to this last week, but really that's actually in a way can be a good place to be because what God wants us to understand is living the Christian life in our own strength is impossible. This frustration that we can have with ourselves, uh, we ought to be frustrated with ourselves. 
But that ought to drive us to depend more and more on Jesus Christ. As long as it's doing that, as long as it's propelling us back to the cross, it's a good thing. So I, I want us to look at what I think is one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible, but, but I'll give you the idea first. The reason this can seem so difficult is because as believers, we have two natures. We have two natures. Now, let, let me kind of just maybe try to correct something for a minute. Some people have been taught that when, um, when you get saved, your old sin nature is just eliminated. That's not the case. That doesn't happen until you're glorified in heaven. That's when we're perfected. Now, that old sin nature is, uh, you know, we have a new nature. Like we talked about last week, we're dead to sin, we're alive in Christ. We've got a, a, a new heart, and, and so we're a new creation in Christ. We can live out of that new nature. You know, the, the old nature can't be at the center of our lives anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it's, but like we talked about last week, it can fight a guerrilla warfare now against us. That's why a lot of times it feels like uh, there's a battle going on on the inside of us. Because there is. I mean, multiple scripture passages talk about this. That if we're in Christ, we, we desire Him. And we want to please Him. But at the same time, there's something that keeps drawing us. Because, see, I think a lot of times we think, you know, since, because we think the, the, the Christian life is like just moral improvement that it's, it's like God's warming our heart up. That's not it. He's given us a brand new heart. But there's still this old me there. They're butting heads all the time. That's going to sound really weird to the people who listen to the audio of this. But, uh, I mean, they're at war with each other. It's, it's like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde on the inside of me. It's like... It's like in our hearts, there's a Tennessee fan and an Alabama fan sitting side by side, just fighting with each other all the time. But you know what? And, and I think maybe sometimes we think this, and, and, and Satan tries to use this in our lives. He's probably trying to convince you that other Christians have got it together, and it's just you that's struggling this way. That's one of his lies. You ever thought that? Well, can I tell you that you're in good company because the Apostle Paul wrestled with this? Let's look in Romans chapter 7 for a minute. And really, probably better if we go through the whole chapter. So we're just going to have to pick up in the middle of his thought. But basically what he's been saying before this, just to, to set some context, is two things. You know, when we got saved, basically he said we divorced the law and we married Jesus, at least as far as the means of our justification and uh, our sanctification. Then he anticipated the objection uh, that I was dealing with when I was talking about antinomianism. He said, uh, like people are going to say, well, what's wrong with the, Paul, the law, Paul? And he's saying, nothing's wrong with the law. The problem's not the law. The problem's me. And that's kind of what he's summing up here in verse 14 when he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. So the problem's not the law, and, and that's where sometimes people will go, right? Uh, when we don't want to repent, we don't want to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, we'll find some, quote, problem in the Bible or some reason not to believe. We'll change the standard, like we talked about last week. That's what antinomianism does. It changes the standard. But Paul says that's not the problem. The problem's not the law of God. The problem's in me. But here's how I expressed it. One of my favorite verses, because I feel this way a lot. You ever feel this way? What I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, 
That I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. So you've been like, and I want to read my Bible. I need to read my Bible. And then seven hours later, you're like, how did I just spend seven hours surfing the internet instead of reading my Bible? Or you've been like, I mean, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't give in to this temptation, whatever it may be. I shouldn't gossip. I shouldn't look at pornography, whatever it may be. I hate it, but I did it. That's what he's talking about. He says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. I'm not going to blame it on the law. I'm going to look in the mirror and blame it on me. He says, but now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Now, this is some good news for us. As Christians, when we sin, we need to know that's not the real us. Uh, We can still go back to it if we're not not knowing and reckoning and and, and believing and surrendering like we talked about last week. We can go back to it, but that's not really us. Really who we are is we're dead to sin, we're alive in Christ, we're a new creation, but it's still there. There's these two things that are going on. He says, for I know that in me, that that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. You know, sometimes we get shocked when Christians commit certain sins. But when we read Romans 7, 18, we really shouldn't be shocked. Anytime we let the flesh be in control instead of the spirit being in control, we're capable of doing anything. And listen, if we don't think that we're capable of committing any sin, any certain sin, the Bible says, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before a fall. Satan would love for us to be overconfident. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. It's like, how could this be the Apostle Paul, right? It says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And understand, you think, man, was Paul just a hypocrite or something like that? Here's the thing. The closer we get to Jesus, the more sin bothers us. And, and, and one of the signs that we're growing spiritually is it's not just the, quote, big stuff that bothers us. It can be little, quote, stuff, too. He says, now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. And now, you know, th- there's a debate among Bible scholars. Like, some people are like, man, this just doesn't even seem to fit with the, you know, how... Holy of a man that Paul seemed to be. He must be talking about before he got saved. He couldn't be uh, struggling like this as a Christian. Well, verse 22 answers that. He says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. He had to be talking about himself as a Christian. Uh, He would have never made that statement about a lost man because there is no non-Christian who can ever delight in the law of God in his inward man. A non-Christian hates the law of God. And so here's how he's going to resolve it. He says, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. There's that warring and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's how he saw himself. That's how we need to see ourselves. Who would deliver me from this body of death? And here's his answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Listen, the answer is not striving for moral improvement. 
It's not striving to try to be a better person. The answer is to see that there is a sin nature in me, but there is a new nature. And I am dead to sin in Christ. I'm alive to God in Christ. I have the resurrection power of Jesus. And when I look to Jesus and surrender to him and believe that's true and rely on him, when I rely on the grace of God, when I see that I can't do it, that's how I change and grow and overcome that old nature and live and walk out this newness of life. It's admitting my inability and relying on his ability. John Newton put it this way. You know, he's, he's the man who wrote Amazing Grace. He, he was a pastor. And uh, th- there's a book that contains a series of encouraging letters that he wrote to other pastors. And at the age of 83, he wrote uh, to another pastor that I'm very surprised at how much I still struggle with sin being 83 and having been a Christian for this long. And I'm paraphrasing, but he he said, I think I've come to some understanding. He said, I used to think that as I grew spiritually, it would lessen my need for grace. But now I've come to understand that spiritual growth is a dependence upon the grace of God. And I think he's captured the essence of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. So, why is it so hard? Because we've got two natures. So, how can we live out of the new nature instead of going back to the old nature? And here's where I want to finish up with giving you three practical steps for us to be able to put this into practice, okay? Here's the first one. We can get up and start walking again when we fall. We can get up and start walking again when we fall. Here's the thing. We're not glorified yet. We're being sanctified. We've not arrived. We're going to fall some. The good news is we're secure because we've been justified and we're going to be glorified. And he who began a good work in us is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, here's the thing. Even though I'm a work in progress, I can be secure in the finished work of Christ. If I'm in Christ, I can't be happy in my sin. But at the same time, I I know that I'm being sanctified. I'm a work in progress, so I haven't arrived yet. So when we sin, we can confess our sin. We can go back to the cross. We can repent. We can get up and start walking again. And that's what God calls us to do. You see, Satan wants to condemn you. He wants you to stay stuck in that sin, stay focused on that sin. Jesus wants you to bring that sin to him and to the cross and and be cleansed and be filled with his spirit again and get up and start walking with him again. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. If you're a righteous person, if you're in Christ, you're going to fall, but you're going to keep getting up. It's the wicked who's going to fall by calamity, never to rise again. When you fall, get up. Start walking. Get up. Start walking. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, that he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them 
will have mercy. What do we do when we sin? We don't hide it. We confess it. And he who confesses it and forsakes it, that's repentance, will have mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, 16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We confess to God uh, for forgiveness. We confess to others for healing. That doesn't mean we tell everybody everything. Don't go post your junk on Facebook today after you listen to this sermon. But we probably ought to be telling somebody something. We confess to God for forgiveness, to others for healing. Mark Clark put it this way. He says, the gospel teaches us how to live and not just what to believe. But the gospel also rescues us when we don't live the way that we're supposed to. It's the finished work of Christ. So let me illustrate it to you this way, okay? I'm going to use my dad as an example, which he won't mind that, uh, but he will mind me. I'm going to tell you his age, which may get me disinherited, but uh, that, that, that's okay. But, uh, so my dad's 79, all right? And um, about, I don't remember exactly how long now, but let's say about four years ago, roughly, he's in his mid-70s, um, he, he, he got an iPhone, he moved from a flip phone to like an iPhone. I don't remember what model it was then. But I mean, you know, we, we're talk- he went up several levels. And he did it at his dentist recommendation, which is a whole other story. But uh, now, I have to say, I was impressed with him. That he's in his mid-70s. He's tackling an iPhone. You know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But this is apparently not the case. So I, so I was impressed with him. But then, um, when he first got his iPhone... Um, I kept getting these hang-up FaceTime calls from him. And uh, so when I saw him, I said something to him about it, and he said, oh, I've been face-mailing you? Uh, And then after that, um, we would try to call him or text him or whatever, and he wouldn't respond. And so, and he, he did this a lot with like Molly and Lily, um, you know, he would ask them questions about his phone, and so they had to explain to him and set up for him that there, you actually have to turn a ringtone on if you want to hear it ring or, you know, there was no ringtone on it, so you know he's getting calls or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, he, he got converted to an iPhone, but there were some issues in, in, in using it for a while. Well, then, um, I don't remember exactly how long ago this was. I think it was sometime last year. We were at dinner, and he was sitting with Lily, who's our just-turned-15-year-old. And, of course, you know, kids today, you know, know just, there's no technology. I mean, I joked in the first service, Ray and Jessica had Sawyer here for the first time. He's like a month old. He's probably already Snapchatting people from their, from their iPhones, you know. I mean, just, it's innate. But, so... I mean, Lily knows, you know, I asked him questions about my phone, too. I mean, I'm no techie. But uh, I I hear off to my side there, Lily and my dad having a conversation about iPhones and technology. And he's talking about stuff he's doing on his phone and and stuff that that, that he's using and stuff that he's downloaded. And, like, I'd never heard of this stuff before. And, I mean, I was, like, really impressed. You know, he's, like, 78, and he's learned all this stuff. He's using this stuff. He's ahead of where I am. I and mean, I'm like, he's come a long way from face-mailing me. And, and, and so here's my point, you know. When, when we 
face mail spiritually. We need to confess it, and we need to get up, and we need to get somebody to help us, and we need uh, to keep walking and keep growing because we can come along and we can grow to where, you know, the, the seesaw doesn't look like this, but it's looking more and more like this. Our, our practice is more and more matching up uh, to our profession because Jesus in us is sanctifying us as we repent and confess our sins. So when we fall, get up and keep walking. Here's something else that we need to know and we need to do. Okay? This is the fourth of the five statements, and I'll hit these last two quickly. It takes discipline to have a daily walk. It takes discipline to have a daily walk. So, you might be like, man, I'm in Ephesians, and uh, you've talked about all this Jesus has done for me. Why am I not experiencing more of it? Well, I'm just going to ask you a simple question. What are you doing to actually experience it day in and day out in your life. Here's what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Or some translations say, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says this, Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Uh, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Think about this. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name. It's in a book called Atomic Habits. Uh, but, but the author of the book says this. He says, there's one thing that winners and losers have in common. They have the same goals. Goals don't actually accomplish anything. I mean, we could go around this room and I could ask you your goals for life. And they'd probably be really similar. But what is it that's going to lead to the achievement of the goals? It's the discipline and the effort that we put into it. He says everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That's what it takes. He's using an athletic analogy. You've got to train. You've got to train to win in sports. It, Paul's saying here, you've got to train to win in the spiritual life. He says, they do it to attain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. He says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. David Platt says, apparently we don't drift toward holiness, we drift towards sinfulness, which means we must be vigilant if we are going to be holy. Discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. You know, one of the things I would challenge you to do with this is just to ask yourself this question and answer it practically this week. What's one way I could discipline myself? What's one thing I could do differently? What's one choice I could make? One habit I could develop that would allow me to know Christ better and live more the way that he wants me to live? What's one little change you can make? Because sometimes one little change can be like a domino's falling that leads to our lives being transformed. I mean, think about it this way practically. So, so let's say you go home, you do whatever you're doing today, you get home this evening, and, and, and you do whatever it is, like you're like, at the end of the weekend, I want to relax before I go back to work. You do whatever you do to relax. You, you watch TV, you read a book, 
uh, you're on social media, you're, whatever you're doing, and, and like you get caught up into it, and you stay up way too late tonight, you oversleep in, in, in the morning, and you know, that's kind of an awful feeling, you know, when your old routine's thrown off, you're just running around trying to get to work, so you get to work, your old day feels off, you come home, you have dinner, you do what you need to do with the kids, just kind of do what you need to do, you're kind of stressed from the day, and, and, and so you kind of do the same thing again, you know, you, you get on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you watch a ball game, well, I mean, whatever it is, as you do, and, and so you're kind of up late. It's not as bad as the day before, but you're you know, rushing getting to work. And, and this whole, that's kind of how your week is. And you come to Sunday and you come to church. What's going to ha- have happened in your life spiritually that week? I mean, Jesus died for you. Jesus is in you. But how much of that are you actually going to experience? On the other hand, let's say you, you discipline yourself to go to bed at a decent time tonight and get up a half hour earlier than you have to get up, and you're spending time with God in prayer and His Word and worship. You're meeting with Him. Uh, you're seeking Him. We're going to be filled with His Spirit. And uh, I think that's going to change how you approach your day. And let's say you do this every day. What will have happened in your life spiritually in the last week? I'm not saying, you know, because it's not about what we get from God. Are you going to know God better? We discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And see, I think a lot of times, we talked about this last week, we're looking for a feeling. But I believe that sometimes we have to discipline ourselves into desire. Because as we practice disciplines, our desires change. Real simple. Think about it this way. Let's say you decide to get in shape. You start going to the gym. Can I tell you, that does not feel good. I mean, I've been here, been there, done that, okay? For the first two to five weeks, you're going to be miserable. It's going to be a discipline. But you keep doing that day in and day out for a while, and this is how I am now. I don't feel right if I don't go to the gym. When I first started trying to lose weight, one of the first things I did is uh, I about, I mean, every once in a while I'll have something if I want, but about 99% I gave up sweet drinks and just started drinking water. I don't want, I mean, I, I can almost get sick by drinking sweet tea now. You make a change, it leads to other changes. As you discipline yourself, it changes our desires. Listen, we have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. It's It's God who works in you, but he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's that one change you could make? Or maybe it's too, I don't don't care, I'm not telling you what to do. Listen, uh, if it's a command in the Bible, we're supposed to obey it. I mean, we're not going to be antinomianisms, but if it's not spelled in the Bible, I have no interest in telling you how to live your life. But here's what I will tell you. We reap what we sow. Choices and consequences. Choices and consequences. You make the choice, you're choosing the consequence. You tell me the choice, I can probably tell you what the consequence is. And if we choose to not discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, we are by default disciplining ourselves for the purpose of ungodliness. We're disciplining ourselves for something. We're training ourselves in some way. We're we're choosing how we spend our time, and we're going to uh, reap the results of it. And then last thing, if we're actually going to live this out, it comes by walking in the Spirit. It comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. So just just one verse, Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, 
but be filled with the Spirit. You may want to look in Galatians 5, 16 through 25, where it tells us two or three times to walk in the Spirit. I, I don't have time, but I, I, I don't want to end without talking about this verse, at least for a minute, okay? I want you to see something here. I want you to see uh, there's two commands in this verse. What's, what's the first command? You tell me. It's a negative command. What is it? Okay, don't be drunk with wine. Right? Is that a command? Don't get drunk. Now, I understand Christians have different convictions about drinking in moderation, but there's a specific command of Scripture here to not get drunk, right? I don't see how we can debate that. But what's the other command? Be filled with the Spirit. So, let me ask you a question. If, 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 well, I'm going to ask you more than one question, okay? Let's have some audience participation. So, can we agree, by the raising of our hands, that uh, it's a sin to get drunk? Would you agree with that? Okay, now, let me ask a follow-up question. If that's true, is it also a sin to not be filled with the Spirit? And actually, I would go a step farther and say that um, alcohol is a bad substitute for the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, I don't think you're having any desire to be filled with alcohol. And once again, I'm not talking about, you know, having a glass of champagne at a wedding or something like that. I'm just talking about, you know, Alcohol is a problem if you're using it to fill a hole in your life. If you're a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit, you have no hole to fill. I mean, you want to overcome an addiction? It's by walking in the Spirit. But I want you to notice there's a comparison here and a contrast. The comparison is to get drunk with wine is to come under the control of wine. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. The contrast is being controlled by wine, by alcohol, hurts us. Being controlled by the Spirit uh, helps us. And so, you know, what, what he's saying here, if we want to live this out and be empowered to do it, and we want to change from the inside out, it comes from living under the control of the Spirit of God. You say, how do you do that? Well, just real quick. One, being God's Word. If you look at the characteristics of being filled with the Word of God and being filled with the Spirit of God in the New Testament, they're extremely similar. The Holy Spirit works through truth. Give Him some truth to work with. Two, we confess our sins. How can He fill us and control us if we're hanging on to sin in our lives? Three, like we talked about last week, we surrender to Jesus because how can we be filled if we're not empty? We, we, it takes faith. We believe that we're dead to sin, alive in Christ. We believe that the Spirit is there and he's wanting to control us. And then, according to the New Testament, we just simply ask in faith for him to fill us, for him to take control of us. What's this look like practically? Well, this is what I would say. When you get up tomorrow morning, I would encourage you that one of the first things that, that you do is you pray, you thank God for the day, you thank him for your blessings, and then you ask him to forgive you of your sins, you surrender your life and your day to Jesus, and you ask him to take control. You ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And through the day, you live in dependence upon the Spirit. You know, we can pray anytime. When the Bible talks about pray without ceasing, something comes up, you're tempted, and you make decisions like, God, help me. And then, you know, when we do sin, what do we do? We confess that sin. We surrender again. We ask to be filled with the Spirit. That's what it means to abide in Christ. That's how we walk this out, where it's not just a Sunday kind of thing. Listen, we have the power to do this because we can live out of the finished work of Christ. But we have to make proper application of this overwhelming force. This is how we do it. Let's go do it.
I, I encourage you, if you've got questions about this, talk to me. If you weren't here last week, listen to last week. You may want to study it because there's only so much of this you're going to get and remember from hearing me talk about it. But if you really want to live this out, if you really want to experience the fullness of life in Christ, put some effort into it. Be disciplined. Be intentional. That's what it takes. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and I'll close this with prayer. Listen, if you've got questions, you need to pray, you need to talk about becoming a Christian. You want to talk about baptism, fill out your connection card, come and see me at the end. If you are a Christian, I encourage you to ask the Lord to show you what's one small change you can make that's going to make a big difference in you living this out. Listen, just hearing this, other than you have to have a foundation of knowledge, isn't going to do it for you. You know, I can't do it for you. I got to do it for me. I can know this. I can talk about it. But at the end of the day, I got to make a choice today and tomorrow and every day. If I'm going to surrender, if I'm going to walk in the Spirit, or if I'm going to try to do it on my own. I encourage you right now, if there's unconfessed sin in your life, you know it's there. There's things you're trying to hide. There's ways you're running from God to ask Him to forgive you. There's something you're really struggling with to talk to somebody that you trust about it. I encourage you to surrender to Christ and repent of trying to live in your own power and ask Him to fill you with His Spirit. Father, I pray that... Uh, Satan would not snatch the seed of the word uh, from our hearts. And Lord, by your grace and your power and through your Holy Spirit, that we would take this and put it into practice. God, help us to walk this out. Lord, transform our lives through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory and for our good. By your grace, in Jesus' name we pray.